0: 1 Corinthians sixteen one and two, where Paul said, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given order unto the churches of Galatia, so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in the stores, God has prospered, in that there be no gatherings when I come. This is the season of giving. And so I thought in light of it being a season of giving, and it might be a good idea for me to say a few things this morning about our responsibility to give. And by way of introduction, just let me make a few remarks about giving. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, we're told not to have fellowship with a covetous person. Among other things, a covetous individual is stingy, penurious, and tight-fisted. And I think we're told not to have fellowship with this kind of person because his spirit is so unlike God, and so unlike Jesus, and so unlike our religion. God gave, and Christ gave, and we're told to give. And so we don't have fellowship with people who don't have this spirit. In the second place, if we're really going to handle the question of giving, I think we must teach our children. I don't remember ever having given one of our children a nickel, a dime, or a quarter for the collection plate. I always gave them folding money. I wanted them to know that the nickels, the dimes, the quarters were for peanuts, popcorn, and soda pop at the ball game but that the serious money was to be given for the advancement of the cause of Christ. In the third place, the burden for giving is ordinarily carried by the minority of a typical church. And in most instances, the majority is perfectly willing that they carry the burden. And fourthly, I want to make clear in the beginning that I do not believe that all Christian giving must be done at the congregational level I believe when we give to support World Christian Broadcasting Corporation or World Bible School or the Children's Home at Marlton or Harding University or African Christian Foundation, I believe we are giving for the advancement of the cause of Christ. Ordinarily when I make a statement along that line, someone will say in response, but Jesus died for the church. He didn't die for Harding University. What is the church? The church is people. Jesus died for you and me. He died for men and women, boys and girls. He died for people. And the people who are doing the work at Harding are in the church. They are Christians. Those who are doing the work with African Christian Foundation are Christians. And the same can be said about these other things that I mentioned a while ago. And I believe that when we give to them, we're also engaged in Christian giving. I've worked in campaigns for Harding. I'm not talking about phonophones. I've worked in those. But I've worked in campaigns for Harding, and the biggest pledge I was ever able to get was from a man in West Texas. It was $25,000. But how in the world could I ask him for $25,000, knowing that it was going to take money from something else, unless I was fully persuaded in my own mind that he was giving to help advance the cause of Christ? Until this year, generally, one-sixth of our annual giving went to Harding University. There's no way in the world that I could justify that kind of giving unless I believe with all of my heart that in doing this we were helping to advance the cause of Christ because we were training young people to send them out as teachers and preachers and elders and deacons to send them out to to found and build solid Christian homes. I do not believe that all Christian giving is limited to the local church. That leads me then to raise this question. How ought we to give? First of all, we should give to meet needs. In 1 Corinthians 16, the passage that's already been read twice, Paul said he was asking the brethren at Corinth to give for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. At Acts 1127 to 30, an earlier contribution says that the money was taken up to assist those who were afflicted by a famine in Judea. Now it's good for me to give. I mean, it's just good in and of itself for me to give. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. But for the life of me, I can't figure out how I could give and give as I ought to if I didn't feel that I was meeting some kind of a need. Across the years, I have received a few letters from brethren that read something like this. In my home congregation, we're just building a bank account. We're not really using the money to accomplish any good. What do you think I ought to do? And I've always written back and said, you should make a token offering at the home church, but send the rest of your money somewhere else where it will be used for the ongoing of the kingdom of God. We must give in order to meet needs. I believe that the church at Corinth had existed for some time before Paul told them to lay by and store on the first day of the week in order to assist those who were needy in Jerusalem. Apparently, the church had been there without a weekly offering. And as far as I know, once that need was met, that weekly offering uh, probably ceased, at least for a time. It's my understanding of the New Testament that a church treasury is not a commanded, continuing institution. In other words, a New Testament church could exist even in a barter culture, in a culture where there is little or no money. I maintain there are such cultures in the world today, and you could have a New Testament church whether there's any money or not. I grew up about 30 miles north of here, and for about a year and a half, I attended a little country congregation where my grandmother was a member. And the collection for the week probably wouldn't run more than a dollar and a quarter, or maybe a dollar and 30 cents. Someone says, that little? Well, you see, people were working for 50 cents a day when they could find work. And it wasn't until 1942 that we began to work for a dollar a day. That little church didn't have much by way of a contribution. Nevertheless, it was a New Testament church. You could say financially the thing hardly existed at all. But nevertheless, it was a New Testament church. Well, if the church treasury is not a commanded, continuing institution, then how do you justify having one today? As a matter of pure expedience. We live in a money culture, and we do so many things by proxy. And I am convinced that sensitive Christians will want to give in order to meet the continual needs that are in the world today. But I'm just making allowance for a church that might be in a barter culture where there is no money, or where there's very little money. But we give primarily to meet needs. In the second place, according to this passage read by Harmon, the brethren in the first century laid by in store on the first day of the week. And it seems to me that his translation said, they laid by or they gave upon the first day of every week. And that's really what it says in the original. wonder why Paul would say that the giving ought to be done on Sundays. Why should it be done on the first day of the week? Well, a moment ago, Don read to us from Acts 20 and verse 7, how the disciples at Troas met on the first day of the week to break bread. And in 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and also verse 20, and in 1 Corinthians 14:23, put together with 1 Corinthians 16:2. And in Hebrews ten twenty five, when you put all of these verses together, it becomes pretty clear in the first century the brethren did meet upon the first day of the week. And when you turn to second century literature, it's crystal clear. I mean, read the Epistle of Barnabas, or read Justin Martyr, and you'll see that the brethren met upon the first day of the week. This being the case, Paul was saying, I think, you're going to be meeting together. It's a time of convenience, then lay by and store on the first day of the week. Give on Sundays. Would it be alright to give it other times? I think the answer is yes. According to Galatians 6.10, Paul said, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them of the household of faith. And in that passage, he's talking about money. Suppose a need should arise, say, on Wednesday night, would it be alright to take up a collection then? I'm convinced it would be. Oh, but now, if you can take a collection on Wednesday night, Wednesday night, then you could take the Lord's Supper on Wednesday night, some say. It doesn't follow at all. You see, the Lord's Supper, as we've already been told, is a commemorative institution. It commemorates the death and the suffering of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And commemorative institutions have a stated time of observance. The Passover, for example, was observed on the 14th day of the first month to commemorate the time when the Jews were delivered from Egyptian captivity. The Feast of Tabernacles had a stated time of observance to commemorate when the Jewish people were living in the tabernacles in the wilderness. The Feast of Purim, although a man-made or a man-originated feast, had a stated time of observance because it it was a time to celebrate how the Jews had been delivered (laughs) from slaughter by the Persians. And the Lord's Supper is a commemorative institution. It has a stated time of observance. What do we commemorate in giving? Not a thing. Not a thing. There is no commemorative value or function in it at all. It is simply a collection of tools that we might be able to do some good. And I maintain if that need were to arise in midweek, it would be all right to take care of it. A lot of times I'm not here on Sunday. And sometimes Maryland is not here either. And so what happens? Then on Monday I'll write a check and send it to the college church. I'm giving on Monday. The collection was taken on Sunday. Is what I'm doing on Monday unscriptural? Is it unbiblical? Not giving it on, on Sunday, but giving it on Monday. I don't think there's anyone here who would say that this is an unscriptural thing. Nevertheless, in the first century, the giving was done primarily upon the first day of the week. Number three, we need to give in harmony with our prosperity. Paul said we're to lay by in store as God has prospered us. Or some translations, I think, say in keeping with our income. If we make more money, we give more. If we make less money, we give less. I've got David Burks down here close to the front, and I hate to tell him this. But I gave less to Harding this year than I did last year. Well, why in the world would that be the case? I went to David, I think, the year before last, or last year, and I said I'd like to have my teaching load reduced by 25%. In other words, teach one course less than what I have been teaching, and he agreed to that. And so I took cut in salary. I want to say this, he was very gracious. He didn't take nearly as much off as he should have. But I took a cut in salary. Since I'd taken a cut in salary, then I didn't give quite as much to the school this year as I did last year. If you make less, you give less. If you make more, you give more. It seems to me that a man who's making $30,000 a year and has a wife and three children to provide for wouldn't be obligated to give as much as a man who's making $30,000 a year and has only his wife and himself to take care of. But we are obligated to give in harmony with our prosperity. We make more, we give more, we make less then we give less. And fourthly, our giving should be planned. Tom used this verse in his Bible class this morning. 2 Corinthians 9.7 says that we are to give as we purpose in our heart. And when you read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, it becomes evident that the people at Corinth planned a year ahead of time to give in order to assist the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. At 2 Corinthians 9.5 in the RSV, Paul refers to it as a promised gift. Now, I cannot argue that they had specified, we will give this specific amount. I'm not sure of that. But at any rate, they had promised a year ahead of time that they were going to give. What about a purpose card? What about a pledge card? Uh, I know we've signed them here in times fast, and I'm hopeful that our elders... Incidentally, if they haven't already asked us to do it, there's a good possibility I was out on a Sunday when when we were asked. But if it hasn't already been done, I hope that our elders will ask us to sign pledge cards, that they'll ask us to sign purpose cards for the next year, and in addition to signing them, put our names on them. God being my helper during 1994, we will give X number of dollars. But someone says, now wait, the Bible says you're not supposed to let your left hand know what your right hand does. And that has to do with giving, Matthew chapter 6. And it's in that same chapter that Jesus apparently said, well, not to have public prayer. Not long ago, I was reading the letters to the editor column and the Democrat, and one fellow in sort of a pontifical way said, uh, well, don't you know that Jesus just denounced having public prayer? <clears throat> I wanted to respond to him, but I didn't. I didn't write anything. But according to Acts 21, Paul and the brethren at Tyre went out to the seashore and they had prayer together. And according to 1 Corinthians 14, Paul had some things to say about public prayer. I led a prayer here last Sunday night. Did I violate uh, Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus talks about praying to be seen of men? The Lord didn't denounce public prayer. He denounced praying to be seen of men. The Lord didn't denounce giving so that other people know it. What He denounced was giving to be seen of men. And if we give just to show off, if we pray simply to be seen, we've already received I reward. There isn't anything wrong with signing a pledge card. There isn't anything wrong with purposing ahead of time. I know that the majority of us in this audience are not opposed to a pledge card or a purpose card because when we bought our houses, we signed one. And we said, over the next so many years, I will pay so many dollars a month until a house is paid for. It. And when we bought our cars, we signed one. We said, I'll pay so much a month for so many years until the car is paid for. When we bought our furniture, we did exactly the same thing. So we have pledged for the house, we have pledged for the car, we pledged for the furniture, but we don't want to pledge when it comes to our donation or our contribution. And then finally, sometimes you hear this, It's really not anyone's business what I give. I think that's a terribly unchristian attitude. I believe it is the business of the leaders of this congregation to know about our giving. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, again, we're plainly told not to have fellowship with a covetous person. How in the world are our elders going to be able to fulfill the design of those verses if they have no idea under the sun as to what we're giving? We have 28 elders in this church. And let me say for the benefit of our visitors, I'm not one of them primarily because I'm not old enough. But anyhow, (coughs) we have 28 elders in this church. And I would be perfectly willing for these men to go over our 1993 records. I'm talking about minutely, with a microscope, and see every nickel we've made and every nickel we've given away. And if our giving this year is not in harmony with our prosperity, if they'll tell us what it ought to be, By the grace of God, we will give it. You don't mean that. I do mean that. I am perfectly willing for them to know exactly what we make and exactly what we give. I may lose my soul, but I don't want to lose it over being stingy. I'd rather go to hell as a drunkard than to go to hell for being stingy. You can't possibly imagine the the poverty in which Lot Tucker and I were reared, and the hardships and the difficulties that we faced as boys. You work for fifty cents a day, or you work for a dollar a day. You live in an old house on which you pay three dollars a month house rent. I mean, now that's poverty. And when I think of what we used to be, and how we've been blessed and benefited by Almighty God, and then turn around and be tight-fisted and penurious and be stingy... That's an anti-God spirit. That's an anti-Christ spirit. That's an anti-Christianity spirit. If I lose my soul, I want it to be over something else besides stinginess. We're obligated to be a generous people, to be a liberal people. And that leads me to say this. According to 2 Corinthians 9 and 6, Paul said, If we sow sparingly, we'll reap sparingly. He said, If we sow bountifully, we'll reap bountifully. And in Romans 12 and 8, according to the RSV, Paul made this statement that we are to give liberally. Give with liberality. Now, one does not have to be wealthy in order to give liberally. According to Mark chapter 12, that poor widow threw in the two mites that amounted to almost nothing. But in the eyes of God, it was an enormous gift because she gave her living. She gave all she had. She was generous. She was liberal, although she was poor. According to Second Corinthians 8, The Macedonians gave to to help the poor in Jerusalem. And Paul said they gave out of their poverty. He said they gave more than they were able to give. As a matter of fact, they had to beg us to take the money. Paul could see that they were giving too much. They were poor, but they were generous. And they were liberal. And God expects His people to be generous. you probably heard the statement that the fellow made, well, if I had a million dollars, I would do this and this and this. And so the man to whom he was speaking said, Well, if you had ten dollars, what would you do with it? He said, Now, that's not fair. You know I have ten dollars. Uh-huh. It's not what I would do if I had. It's what I'm doing with what I have that counts before God. What do you think about tithing? What do you think about Christians giving a tenth of their income? Under the law of Moses, which was sanctified by the blood of animals, an inferior covenant, everyone was expected to give a tenth. Widows, orphans, poor people, they were all expected to give a tenth. Now, those who are wealthier had to give more. But everybody started there. And our Lord, during His personal ministry, commended tithing. Sometimes we miss it because it's in an expression of condemnation. But in Matthew chapter 23, when He was dealing with the religious leaders of His day... He said, You tithe men, and us and coming, and you overlook the weightier matters, justice, mercy, and faith. And then notice what he said. These you ought to have done and not to have left the other undone. He commended them because they tithe their garden herbs. According to Hebrews chapter seven, Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. And Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Should we give less to him? Should we give less to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? According to the third chapter of Malachi, God said, Well, a man robbed God, yet you've robbed me. And in that passage, He said they had robbed him because they were not giving the tithe. They were not giving a tenth. And as far as I know, the only time robbery of God is referred to in Scripture is where people did give less than a tenth. Oh, but someone will say, We're not under the law of Moses. And I sometimes wonder if our attitude should be, well, Thank God we're not under the law of Moses. Thank God we're not under the law. Because I can give 2% and be a loyal Christian. I could not be a conservative, devout Jew and give less than a tenth. I couldn't be a Seventh-day Adventist and give less than a tenth. But I can be a blood-bought, born-again, New Testament Christian and give 2% and give 3%. It's been my conviction for a long, long time that we're really not going to get the job done evangelistically. Until we can get our people to thinking in terms of at least a tenth. When our son Michael graduated from high school, he received more than $400 in graduation gifts. I mean, he was just raking in the loot. That kid wanted to re-graduate. Uh, really. He was having himself a time. And so I kind of slipped up on his blind side and I said, Mike, you've gotten over $400. I said, "Don't you think the Lord ought to, ought to get a cut? Don't you think he ought to get at least a tenth of that?" He said, "Daddy, now they didn't give this to the Lord; they were giving it to me." <laughs> I said, "Well, that's right, but don't, don't you think? Don't you think probably he ought to? Lord ought to get his cut." I said, "I'm not telling you what to do; I'm just making a suggestion." He never said another word to me, but he took his four hundred and some odd dollars and put it in his little bank account. And he wrote a check for forty-some-odd dollars, and he put it in the collection here one Sunday morning. Well, how do I know about it? He didn't tell me, but he told his mother. I will tell you something. I was never any prouder in my life because he was learning that he had a responsibility to share with the Lord's cause what he had been blessed with. year, year and a half ago, one of our elders stood on this platform and he said something to the extent that there is no specific teaching in the New Testament that we must give a tenth. And I happen to agree with that. But I'm saying in light of the giving done in times past, under that inferior covenant, shouldn't we at least give thought to the beginning at a tenth? And for many of us, we can give even more than that. And then someone will say, should that be before or after taxes? Now, let me tell you something, folks. That's not a foolish question. Should it be before or after taxes? I would say if we can give the tenth before taxes, let's do it. And young people, I'm not trying to be condescending in telling you this, but there are a lot of middle-class, hard-working people here this morning who bear a terrific burden tax-wise. The average individual in this audience, middle-class person in this audience, is working for the government until about April the 15th every year. Three and a half months. So taxes are a burden. How should you figure you're giving? I say, if we can give that tenth before taxes, let's do it then. We've always been able to do that. If you have to wait until after taxes, at least give serious thought to giving the Lord's cause at least a tenth. And for many of us, we can give more than that. Let me bring this to a conclusion. The problem is not money. Last... Oh, I think Tuesday night, Marilyn and I were sitting at our dining room table and she was working on Bible school material and I was doing something probably bothering her. Anyhow, I was sitting there. And I noticed she had a Piggly Wiggly sack. Now, I've been to Piggly Wiggly stores for years, but i would never noticed what's written on the sack. And it said at the top, low prices, and at the bottom, no sacrifices. Low prices, no sacrifices. And I mean it just hit me like a bolt out of the blue. That is... A summation of Christianity as the masses view it. Low prices, no sacrifices. You can be a Christian without denying yourself of anything. And you can be a Christian without bearing a cross. In Second Corinthians twelve fourteen, Paul said, We seek not yours, but you. He said, We're not after what you have. He said, We just want you. And of course, if God gets you, He gets what you have. In 2 Corinthians 8 again, where Paul was talking about the giving of the Macedonians, he said they first gave themselves to the Lord. And if the Lord gets us, he gets our time, our talents, our abilities, our monies. He gets us heart, soul, body, mind, and strength. He gets all of us. And the issue is not do you go to church regularly? The issue is not, are you giving as you've been prospered? The issue is, do you belong to Jesus? And if you belong to Him, church attendance will take care of itself. Giving will take care of itself. The morally upright life will take care of itself. Bringing our children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord will take care of itself. You see, number one is being right with Him. And as I grow older, I have begun to see that one of the most important things we need to teach non-Christian people is not necessarily that they ought to be baptized. Now, that's important. But they need to be taught that they ought to repent. And when an individual repents, he turns his will over to the will of God. And he sees water baptism. He said, hey, I want to be baptized. Why? Because I'm turning my will over to the will of God. And then as he is taught, he'll give. As he's taught, he'll attend church. As he's taught, he'll become evangelistic and reach out and try to help others. But the key is allowing myself to belong to Him. I want to urge all of us in this church to do what we can to make up this deficit. We have needs in today's world. I believe our elders are wise men, and I think they've devised a good program. And let's try to take care of it. But this morning, before we leave, we want to get back to that central issue. And that is, if you're not a child of God, you need to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, that you might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you've drifted away, you need to repent and pray, God, that perhaps the thought of your heart might be forgiven you. But the central thing here is, I'm just going to let Him have His way in my life. And if I'll do that, then all of these other things will fall into place. God loves you and me, and Jesus died for us. And the invitation today is from the Savior. If you need to respond... Won't you come right now while we stand and sing? God bless you.